True North Cup is trading hands this week. Did you know that? Well, maybe it won't trade hands, perhaps. Maybe Team North will win. But the True North Cup is happening this week. Dodgeball is happening. Technically, Team North has never actually won a dodgeball tournament. So we'll, we'll see if they can hang on to it. But uh, statistically, I think it's likely that the Cup will change hands this week. It'll either go to Team West or Team South or Team... East, perhaps. That's right. I don't know. I have my theories. I, I think there's a front runner that I think I've told you, but uh, we'll see if the script plays out as I wrote it. But yeah, I mean, you guys are all on these teams. If you don't know what team you're on, you'll come on Wednesday night and you'll get put on a team. You'll know where you're at. Uh, make sure you guys wear your jerseys, by the way, to this Wednesday night. Even if you feel like I'm not a dodgeball player and I'm not going to play, still wear your jersey because you want to be a part of this team, which some of you got traded this year. Big Z got traded. <laughs> Kyle got traded. <laughs> Andrew Baca got traded. Drew O'Connell got traded. He's not even here. Rip. Uh, Kayla got traded. Roke got traded. Tommy got traded. Alex got traded. DJ got traded. Their whole small group got traded. Did you hear about that? Yeah. Kind of sad, you know? relationships broken, especially Tommy. Tommy makes any team that he's on better. He does it silently. People don't know why, but it's just better because Tommy's there. And then uh, all of a sudden, Team West doesn't have Tommy anymore. Now he's on uh, Team North. But, you know, all these relationships are kind of built to end. No offense. You're only going to be on these teams for a certain number of years, and then it'll be off to college. And you'll forget that you were ever on a team except for the little glory days that you had of winning the True North Cup. That's how it feels probably with your school right now. You're out of high school, and, you know, I know Laguna Hill says, once a hawk, always a hawk, but it's not totally true. It's not my Roman Empire. I don't think about Laguna Hills High School all the time. It just doesn't happen. Uh, but, you know, it was good for the time I was there. But some of those relationships are just made to be broken. Right? It would be really sad if I told you today that I've decided to release my children and uh, no longer be Eden's father. You'd be like, well, that's a little extreme. I mean, it's one thing to get traded from east to west. It's another thing to lose a relationship like that. What about uh, my son Jordan? Well, you know, he's kind of annoying, so I think, it's, uh, I think it's about time he finds another home. You'd be like, well, that's not a good idea. I think that that's, you know, extreme. That's a relationship, Pastor John, that you probably shouldn't break. If I said, yeah, me and Alexandra, we're just not getting along these days, um, we're just deciding to call it quits in our marriage. We're going to get divorced. If I told you that, I hope that you would have some massive response built in just how you feel about that. Even before you think it through, I hope you feel like that's not right. There's something about that that's supremely wrong, and you'd be right. It is wrong when parents split apart, when divorce happens, when those kind of big relationships break. It is not what God wants. This is a bad thing. Now, divorce and marriage and things like that are things that the Bible talks all the time about because they're real problems about people who have these real problems. And you know, if you know the stats in our country, and maybe you come from a home where divorce has taken place on one side or the other, or maybe your grandparents are divorced and doing Christmas and Thanksgiving is kind of a nightmare because it's not just like, you know, one mom, one dad, Two parents on both sides, but there's a lot of different splits in the family, like I have in my extended family, a lot of different families to attend because of divorce, right? Maybe your parents are divorced. Statistically speaking, about half of the people who are growing up in this country have parents who are divorced. 
The other half of their parents are together, but half of people, their parents are not together anymore. So you might know what this is like um, from personal experience. The stats that I gave you during our marriage series that we did back in uh, March when we were talking about the book of Ephesians, that marriage passage, I, I quoted some stats to you. Here's what I said. I said that in America, 20% of marriages end in divorce in the first five years. If you take all the marriages, end in five years. 32% of marriages end in divorce in the first 10 years. That's extreme. They can't even make it 10 years. Of all first marriages, so people who are getting married for the first time, 41% of those marriages end in divorce. Of second marriages, people who got divorced once and then are now with their second husband or wife, well, 60% of those marriages end in divorce. And for third marriages, 71% of third marriages don't make it till the time they die. They end in divorce. Divorce is a huge problem. And thankfully, we can study it together this morning, saying one thing very clearly. None of you have been divorced. Isn't that exciting? Right? This is good. Congratulations. Whew. Last week, we talked about lust. The week before, we talked about anger. It's like, man, we all struggle with that. But hey, good news is we start on a pretty good playing field for you because you haven't been divorced, okay? This is good news. But I will tell you this. Stand in the position that you're in, right, as a high school student, studying Jesus's words about divorce. For some of you, this means a lot because you know people in your life that are divorced, or maybe your parents are divorced. Others of you, maybe you come from a family where you got two parents that are married, and maybe both their parents are married too. That's a huge blessing, and it's a rare blessing these days. But what I want to tell you is, now is the time for you to develop what you believe about marriage and what you believe about divorce, and for you to stick to that for the rest of your life. Now is the time before you're married, to develop your convictions on the kind of person you're going to be and the kind of person you're going to look for. Because if you wait until you're in a relationship of marriage to form your convictions, at that point, it might be too late. Because the person you're married to might not agree. They might not come to the same conclusions. But now is the time for you as a high school student to develop what you believe about marriage. And I want to learn this from God's word in particular. So grab a Bible. Um, if you don't got one, uh, we have some in the back. You can grab one. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to start. But this section is going to set us up to look at a bunch of different passages, okay? So we're going to turn to a few passages. We usually just reference a few passages. I want you to turn your Bible to a couple different passages. But we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. This comes after he just talked about adultery. Right? And he said, hey, make sure that people who are married or people who are not married don't think that you're free from this law of adultery just because you have not you know, cheated on your spouse. If you've looked with lust, you know that's a problem too. And that breaks God's law of your hearts. But then he talks about adultery and divorce in a very literal, clear sense here in verse 31. Because he says, he quotes the Old Testament, he says, it was also said, again, to the people who were of old, so a long time ago, he quotes the Bible, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So this is interesting because he's going to quote Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. That's the quote here. But he's not going to quote it in a favorable sense. Right? The other quotations that he did about anger and about lust, he quotes one of the Ten Commandments. Now, He's quoting the Bible, and this is the Bible. He's quoting Deuteronomy 24.1. But this time, he's going to say, okay, you heard that this was the commandment. 
but I say to you, and he's going to be stricter than what Deuteronomy 24.1 says. Okay? So listen to this. He says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. I want you to read that carefully because usually if we're going to read this passage, it's like, okay, he's saying divorce equals adultery. It's not exactly what he's saying. Divorce is bad, but divorce does not equal adultery, right? We defined adultery last week. What is that? That's when a person who's married cheats on their spouse, right? Uh, or a person who's not married uh, has some kind of relationship with someone who is married. But that's adultery, very you know, clearly defined. But he's saying here, not that divorce equals adultery, but read again what he said. This is interesting. He says, whoever divorces his wife, right? And again, in that culture, in the Jewish area, right? We're not talking about Greeks and Romans. We're talking about Jewish people. Wives did not divorce their husbands. They did not have the right to divorce their husbands. Husbands, culturally, divorced their wives a lot and for a lot of different reasons. So he's talking to a group of guys because really only the guys in that culture could divorce their wives. So here's what he says. If you divorce your wife, you let her go, you write your certificate of divorce and you have her walk out the door, what are you doing? Jesus says you are making her commit adultery. That is different than how we tend to think about divorce. He's not just saying it's wrong for you because you should be in this marriage, although that's true. He's saying you need to think about the other person here that you're setting this person up to do wrong by divorcing them. Wow, that's not how we tend to think about marriage and divorce, but that's what he says right here. Read what he says next, right? Except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And just to be clear, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, right? This is a very, very strict sexual ethic and a marriage ethic, right? This is stricter than what most people will tell you. Even most Christians will tell you. He's saying here, okay, if you are a man, you're like, hey, I don't like my wife, you know, she can be with somebody else. I'm going to find someone better, which is what was happening a lot in Jesus's day. It happened a lot now, but now it goes both ways. Wives divorce their husbands, husbands divorce their wives. Back then, it was all, in this culture, husbands divorcing their wives. He says, you're making her commit adultery. You're setting her up to break your marriage covenant by marrying somebody else. And you, by the way, if you go and marry a divorced woman, you're breaking their covenant. You're committing adultery, right? Because you're messing up the relationship that woman should have with her husband. This is not how we tend to think about it. Have you, are you reading this the same thing I'm reading this and thinking, wow, that is actually, that might be a little different than what I've been taught or what I've heard. This is strict, strict stuff. And again, he gives an exception clause. And I think 1 Corinthians 7 gives another exception clause, another reason why divorce can be permitted. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes, he says, if your spouse refuses to live with you, in particular, that context was, if we got a Christian who's non-Christian husband or non-Christian wife says, I, I don't want to live with you. You're a Christian now. I, I hate all the stuff you're doing. I'm leaving. Paul says, you can let that person go, right? You don't have to stay married to them. They can go. You are free. You are not enslaved to that relationship anymore, okay? But this is very, very strict, stricter than our rules, our American rules about divorce. And the reason I bring all this up is because I want to show you, okay, if this is what God says about marriage and divorce, you better respect marriage 
in a higher position than you normally do. You better think of marriage as more sacred or set apart or serious or solemn. You better think about marriage higher than our culture does if you're really going to do what Jesus is saying right here. Because remember, what is he doing in this passage? He is going beneath the law to the heart. He's saying, okay, yeah, don't commit murder. That's really important. Great rule. But you also shouldn't get angry. Oh, don't commit adultery. Yeah, that's, that is super important. Don't do that. But also, don't even look with lust. Now he's saying, oh, the Bible says that there's permission for divorce. Yeah, no, there, there is. There is on occasion. But don't do that. Don't take it unless you have to take it, right? This is a very, very high calling that Jesus sets us up for. Yeah, my point for you is like, okay, great. None of you are married, can't get divorced, right? Wow, this is awesome. Great, let's just move on to the next passage. I don't think we should move on to the next passage until next week because I want you to develop what you believe about this from God's word, not from the culture, but from God's word. And I keep saying the culture because Jesus speaks into a culture and he is saying you in your culture, have wrong views of divorce. That was true in Jesus' time. They were doing it all wrong. Okay. Now, I want to think, in the 21st century, does our culture have anything wrong to say about divorce? That we might have to say, that's not marriage, this is marriage. No, you can't just divorce your spouse just because you don't like them anymore, because you fell out of love, or because you love yourself so much that you found someone else who you think loves you more than your spouse, then you can, no. The Bible says no, that's wrong. Our culture and God's word do not agree. Jesus' culture and God's word did not agree. So point number one, I want you to write this down. Learn about marriage from God, not the culture. Learn about marriage from God, not the culture. That was just as true today as it was true in Jesus' time. And the problem was, who was shaping the culture of divorce and remarriage for those people back then? Right? The Romans, they had their culture. But what about in this whole, like, this Jewish group of people who shaped their teaching and their doctrine and, and what was right and wrong? Who were the people doing that, right? Two groups of people, the scribes and the Pharisees, right? They had twisted the meaning of marriage and the permissions for divorce to basically say, you can divorce your spouse no matter what. There was a big debate that happened even before the time of Christ. Two rabbis, one was named Hillel, he was the liberal guy. He said, hey, you can divorce your wife for any reason you want. And he made a big whole list of reasons why you could divorce your wife. And Shammai was another rabbi who said, no, 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 you can't do that. Right? These two rabbis basically had two schools of thought, two groups of disciples. This was before the time of Jesus, and they kind of fought it out. Like, what are, we, what are our Pharisees, what are we going to say about divorce? What are we going to say about remarriage? And it was about more than that, but they fought on this. Shammai was like, hey, dude, the Bible says, no, we shouldn't do this. From the beginning, we shouldn't do this. But Hillel is like, no, no, no. God gave Moses permission to have these guys write certificates of divorce. So, I mean, if you look at Deuteronomy 24, it says, if he finds any indecency in her, let's maybe expand the word indecency to go beyond sexual immorality or beyond the clear rules of God to say, like, if he finds her indecent, maybe if she doesn't look the way she used to look. Maybe if she doesn't do the things that she used to do for you, then you can divorce them. Right? I have a list of things that come from the Mishnah. Okay? The Mishnah was written in, in 200-ish AD, so that's 200 years after Jesus. But 
The Mishnah is really helpful if you're studying what Jews believe because it was basically what their oral tradition was where they pass it down orally. Now, this is what they wrote down in the 200s to say, this is what us Jews believe. What happened was by the time of the 200s, they had completely adopted the teachings of Hillel, this rabbi who was like, you can divorce for any reason. Okay? And I think that gives us a clue that by the time of Jesus, they probably had adopted Hillel and his teachings a lot. So here's some things from the Mishnah, reasons why husbands can divorce your wives. Are you ready for this list? Okay, this is a long list. Just get ready. All right. If she was barren, she couldn't have kids, you could divorce your wife. If she became deaf or mute for any reason, divorce. If she had warts or developed leprosy, divorce. If she didn't cook for him, divorce. You, well, hold on, we're, we're just getting started. If her head was wedge-shaped or hammer-shaped or was flat on the back, divorce. If she had bad posture, you could divorce her, right? Ladies, you're in trouble now, right? Like shoulders back, right? You know what I'm talking about? If she had thinning hair, started losing hair, getting thinning hair, you could divorce her. That's fine. If she had no eyebrows, you could divorce her. If she only had one eyebrow, you could divorce her. Believe it or not, if her eyebrows were too bushy, you could also divorce her, okay? I feel like there's simpler solutions to this than divorce, right? But like... Okay, we're not even halfway through. And I only wrote the ones I thought you would think are interesting. If her nose was too big or too small, you could divorce her. If her ears were too little or too floppy, you could divorce her. If she had an overbite, divorce. Underbite, divorce. Loose to lost tooth, you could also divorce her. Um, if she had bony ankles or knees, which I'm like thinking, what is that really? Define for me boning ankles and knees, right? This is in the Mishnah, okay? This is 1,800 years old. They wrote this stuff down, which to me kind of just feels like we're just looking for reasons to divorce our wife at this point, right? Okay? If, uh, okay, this one's my favorite. If she's ambidextrous, you could divorce her. So I'm not really sure why you would want to divorce your wife. It's like she's writing with her left hand and her right hand. I'm jealous. Get out of here, right? Yeah, this is a, uh, if she ate something that was forbidden by her husband, if her husband said you can't eat that and she went and ate it, uh, you could divorce her. If her in-laws moved into the same town against the husband's wishes, you could divorce her. Ask your leaders about that. <laughs> if she wore her hair unbound in public, you could divorce her. Um, where am I? Yes, if she curses her husband's parents, you could divorce her. If she, this is another good one, if she yelled at her husband inside their house loud enough for people outside to hear her yell at her husband, you could divorce her. If she burnt your food, literally if she burnt your supper, you, according to the Mishnah, could divorce her. Or really, the ultimate reason, if you found someone prettier than her, you could divorce her. Which feels like that's what we are, we got to the, the, the main thing at the end, right? Like, I don't really know why you're divorcing your wife for being ambidextrous, but 
it's probably it's not the real reason, you know? That's just the selection of things from the Mishnah that Jesus' culture said, yeah, you could, you could leave your wife for that. I want you to think how extreme that is, right? Today, it's just as extreme. Today, it's just like, hey, if you fall in love with someone else, yeah, you could divorce your spouse. If you find someone who's better for you or more compatible for you, yeah. Our rules today, our social rules are just as stupid as this, right? These are just funnier, right? Because people aren't writing on the certificate of divorce like her ears got too floppy, right? It's probably not what's happening. But I want you to notice, Jesus' culture got marriage and divorce wrong in a lot of different ways. One way that we see this is in John 8. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but it's a story of a woman caught in adultery. They're about to stone her, which is like, well, is that right? Is that wrong? Well, that part, technically, according to the Mosaic Law, is not wrong, okay? But I want you to think, a woman caught in adultery, and she's the only one who's facing this problem. Use your thinking real quick. A woman caught in adultery, that takes two people, and that takes a guy, and he's nowhere to be found in the story. And this is because at the time of Jesus, adultery was not something that men really could be guilty of. It was really only something the ladies could be guilty of, which is not true if you read the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 22, two chapters before the thing he quotes, says, hey, if two people are sleeping around, two married people, they both deserve the death penalty in Deuteronomy 22. That's how bad it is for their family, their culture, this nation. God said to Moses for the Israelites in that nation, that's not, that's not okay. okay. So serious. But they had got this wrong. I want us to turn to some passages. I told you we would. Um, a few passages here. The first one is in Genesis 2. Let's just go back to the beginning. Let's see where God invented marriage. And that's you know, a very important thing to consider as you're turning there. Marriage is God's thing. It's not our thing. Right? So like, if we partake in something that God made, he defines it, he sets the rules, we follow his rules, we don't make our own rules like the Jewish people did. Genesis 2, right at the beginning. Right at the beginning of your Bibles, Genesis 2. If you start in verse 18, I'll read it for you. It says, Then God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So right here at the beginning, you got one human being, and God says, it's not good that we have one kind of human being, right? Just one dude. This is not a good situation. Um, he needs a help of it for him. So it says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called them, every living creature, that was his name. The man gave to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. It wasn't the right companion for Adam. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and then closed up the place with his flesh. And you think that's weird. You should look at the way that God made Adam. God made Adam even weirder. Made him from dirt, right? At least women were made from something better than dirt, right? Men were made from dirt. Women were made from a rib, right? That's where it started. And the rib that God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, so that's, the, that's what happened historically. God turns and says, okay, here's the thing for all of time. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and 
hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Right? That's a forever thing. That's what he says. Okay, not just here in the garden, but that's what's going to happen for the rest of time. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed, right? Uh, which is interesting because obviously there in the garden, no sin had taken place. There was no need for any kind of insecurities or any problems or any shame because there was nothing to hide at that point. But it's interesting that a marriage relationship is really the only relationship where that can continue to happen past the fall of sin. So in this little tiny section in Genesis 2, what do you learn about marriage? Right? Well, one thing you learn is that God made it, so he defines what it is. The other thing that you learn is that it's between two people, between one man and one woman. And that's the other thing that Jesus even reiterates in Matthew 19, that marriage is only and can only be between one guy and one girl. Right? In our culture, really three threats to this. Um, one is what people call homosexual marriage, right? Where you got one guy and another guy, where you got one girl and another girl, right? Biblically speaking, that is not a marriage. It's not a marriage, right? It doesn't matter what the culture calls it, right? It's not a marriage. So if we have two guys and they become Christians and they're just like, okay, what do I do? Well, it's like, do we let them divorce? Should they divorce? Hmm, that's really, it's not a hard question because it's not divorce because they're not married because God doesn't call them married. Again, that's not what the culture says. Just like in Jesus' culture. Jesus went against his culture because he went with God's word. We have to go against whatever the culture says if it's against God's word, which it clearly is. Homosexual marriage. The other one that's probably going to become even more popular is what's called polyamory. Right? You know this um, short, you know, that people call it poly just for short. Uh, that's where you have one union but between multiple people. So you got three, four or up to maybe five people, are in one union. It's one marriage, right? And you're like, oh, man, nobody would ever believe that. Well, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where, I don't know, a place called Harvard is, that's legal in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right? In Somerville, Massachusetts, they have legal protection now, polyamory. What is that? It's usually three, sometimes four, right? People that say we're in one marriage together, right? That's not a marriage. God says a marriage is between one man and one woman, and that's it. And that's all it will ever be. So that, you can call it something else, right? You can call it polyamory, just like you can call it homosexuality, but you can't call it marriage because it's not marriage. Uh, the other one, more historically, a problem was, it's different than polyamory. It's the problem of polygamy, okay? Polygamy is different than polyamory. Polyamory means one union, many people. Polygamy means there might be multiple people involved, but it's multiple different unions, right? So if it's a guy who has you know, three wives, it's not one marriage, right? That's different than polyamory. Polyamory, if it's one guy and three girls, like that's all one union. Polygamy is I have three different marriages at the same time. That's problematic too. We see that actually in the Bible and it doesn't lead to anything good, right? Is it legitimate marriage? They are legitimate marriages. All three of those marriages are legitimate marriages. It's illegal in our country, right? Thankfully, but those are three legitimate marriages but it's still outside of God's original design. It's still not a good thing. It doesn't lead to the best kind of society. It doesn't lead to the best kind of life. And if you don't believe that, go look up any person in the Bible who had more than one wife. Always problems. And you know what the problems always came from? The fact that he had more than one wife, right? So there's connection there. Again, here's what's different, not to get too complex, difference between homosexuality and polyamory and then polygamy. Polygamy, those are legitimate marriages before God, but it's still a, a deviation outside of God's plan. 
There's a difference there. Um, but it's still bad. <laughs> so, yeah, don't get any ideas. Um, okay. That's Genesis 2. Another passage that's really helpful in establishing what we believe is at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 2. Turn there real quick. Malachi chapter 2. If you don't know where that is, just turn to Matthew, and it's one book. So if you just went back to Matthew 5 and turned one book to the left, you'd find it right there. Malachi chapter 2. Genesis 2, Malachi 2. Easy to remember. The beginning and the end of the Old Testament, they both talk about marriage and what it means and what it is. So we learn in Genesis 2, it's between one man and one woman. It's God's thing, and it's, really, it's for life, right? Because he said, leave your father and mother, hold fast to your wife, and the two shall become one flesh, right? So they're, they're a unit from now on. Malachi 2, verse 13, Malachi is preaching there at the end of the Old Testament age, saying, here's the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping, and with groaning because he no longer regards your offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So, historical problem. They're offering these sacrifices to God, but it's clear God's not listening anymore. And Malachi says, do you want to know why God's not listening to your worship anymore? Do you want to know, God, why God doesn't care about your songs that you're singing in church or the offerings that you're, that you're bringing to God? Why does he not care? Verse 14. But you say, why does he not regard them? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So he's saying, here's why. Because you guys are divorcing your wives for illegitimate reasons. He says, I don't, I don't want to hear your worship. I don't want to hear your songs. I don't want to go, go be reconciled. Just like what we learned in Matthew 5 about the problems of reconciliation, right? Where God said, I prefer you to go Fix the problem first rather than worship. So he says, here, I'm not listening to the worship because um, we got people who are unwilling to be together here. She is your wife by covenant. Who is the witness? God is the witness. You ever hear that in marriage ceremonies? With God as our witness? Where does that come from? It comes from Malachi 2. Because that's what God says. He is the witness. So when people break the covenant of marriage by adultery, by sexual morality, or by divorce or something like that, whose covenant are they breaking? just their promise between them and the other person? No. Between them and the other person and God. They're breaking this promise they made before God. And God was the witness. He was there watching it. He said, yeah, they're your wife by covenant. Did, look at verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? There's something spiritual about marriage? I guess there's something sort of spiritual about marriage, right? Because he says, God puts you together. Who made them one? Did did they make each other one by being together or, or, you know, by getting married or was it their parents? No, it was God who put them together. Just like every married person today, who puts them together? God, right? If someone says, hey, you know, I just really want to divorce my spouse. Like, well, okay, let's be careful because remember who put you together? God put you together. You think God wants you to be apart? Well, I'm, I'm not so sure about that because it seems like God wants you to be together. It seems like God was the witness at your wedding. So let's, before we say let's be out of it, let's look at what he says here. He says, and what was God seeking? He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, in your own hearts, lest you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Right? He is setting himself up and his family up for massive problems, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. 
Again, who was that to? It's to a bunch of dudes who were tempted to divorce their wife, right? Again, that's not you, right? You know, half of you aren't dudes, right? The other, the other half of you aren't married, right? So there you go, right? So this isn't for you. But I want you to hear what he says and say, okay, what kind of thought process should I have about this thing called marriage and this thing called divorce? Very clear things you learn here is God put them together. This is God's institution. And when people get married, it's God putting them together, okay? Now, what about divorce? Because even in our passage in Matthew 5, Jesus says there are some reasons to get divorced, like sexual immorality. And the Bible gives a couple others. But I want us to understand what those are. So point number two, I want you to understand God's sad concessions for divorce. Sad concessions. They're concessions, not commands. I want you to see this a little bit more clearly in Matthew 19. So after you write that down, you can turn to Matthew 19 and see Jesus explain this further. And here's one of the problems of studying Matthew 5, by the way. Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32, has a very, very short description of marriage and divorce. And then in Matthew 19, the same book, he gives a longer explanation. So you never really should read that really short explanation apart from the longer explanation that he gives in the same book, right? So Matthew 19, smart to turn there and read this together. Jesus is asked a more direct question about divorce. Here's what he says. Matthew 19, verse 3. It says, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So what's in the back of their mind, right? Flathead, burnt dinner, small nose, floppy ears, warts, right? That's what's in their mind when they say, hey, can you divorce your wife for any cause? Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, quote, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he just quotes the passage we just looked at. That's why we looked at it. He says, have you not read that from the beginning? That's how it should be. Verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. That's very interesting. I don't know if you think about this. Marriages end all the time. And God ends a lot of the marriages. How does God end marriages? He ends them by death. Romans 7 says that every time someone dies, God ended the marriage. The marriage is no longer applicable, right? We're not like the people in India who say, hey, once you're married to that husband, might as well burn you on a, on a funeral pyre because, you know, you're that one dude's wife. Right? That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that if your husband dies, then, yeah, you're out of the marriage. It's not a divorce. God ended it. But look what he says. If God has joined something together, don't you go and separate it. God can separate it. God does separate it often. If a parent dies, right, that's, that's God saying it's in my sovereign plan, separate it. But don't you go and separate it. Verse 7, and he said, and they said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Notice, he turns this into a command. Jesus says, hold on, hold on. Wasn't a command, wasn't saying, hey, you should divorce your wife. It was a concession. He's going to say in verse 8, he said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so, right? So he's saying he allowed you to because of problems. And I want to talk about that for a second. Deuteronomy 24 says there are reasons why it can be legitimate to divorce your spouse. Um, Deuteronomy 24 says, and I quoted at the beginning, 
if he finds some indecency in her, which that word indecency, if you look it up in the, in the Hebrew, it's like it has overtones of like sexual immorality. So you could imagine a situation where a guy gets married, assumes because she has been saying, I, oh no, I, I'm faithful, I, I, I'm good, I'm good. And you could, you could imagine there's a situation in which you get married and very quickly you find out, no, 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 you have not been faithful. This, this whole relationship has been built on a lie. Like you've been immoral, you've been doing a lot of bad stuff. And then what do you do about that? There's problem, there's sin. How do you fix it? God says, okay, in that situation, yeah, you could divorce your spouse. But in Deuteronomy 24, it says, you have to write a certificate of divorce. That's better than not writing a certificate of divorce. Here's why. Because if a lady, especially back in that culture, if she was to be kicked out of her husband's house, why do most people assume she got kicked out? With no certificate of divorce that says, this is the reason why? What does everyone assume about that lady? She's an adulterer. He kicked her out, right? So it's a protection, even for her reputation. No, no offense, but wouldn't you rather have on your certificate of divorce floppy ears than adulteress, right? One of those is better than the other. It was also a protection for her because here in Deuteronomy 24, God says the first husband, it, it paints a picture. It says, okay, let's say a husband divorces that wife. He's got to write a certificate of divorce. It's got to be official, clear. Here's the reason why. And then let's say that lady goes and marries somebody else, which is what usually would happen. If that woman's husband died and now she's single again, guess who can't remarry her? First husband's not allowed to remarry her. See, why, why would that be? Because right? you could imagine how easily a guy could abuse his power and his former relationship to say, you are my wife and to take advantage of her when she's single. So God put a protection to say, you can't do that. It even says earlier in Deuteronomy 22 that if you were to accuse your wife of some kind of sexual immorality and it was proven that you were wrong, guy, husband, man, you would be whipped, you'd be fined 500 shekels of silver and you could never divorce that lady for the rest of her life. God was so strict because he didn't want injustice to happen. He wanted justice to happen in these marriages. It was a protection. And even worse, a lot of commentators and scholars think that... Um, one of the reasons God did this was because he's trying to protect these ladies from being killed. I mean, back then, if you look at the culture, a lot of husbands who didn't like their wives would kill their wives. And God said, there needs to be a protection so that these husbands don't kill their wives. Let's protect their life by letting the certificate of divorce happen. Okay? So even that certificate of divorce, once you see, it was God's grace to try to mend as best he could the broken situation that's happening there. It wasn't the ideal. So Jesus says, no, it's not the ideal. If you're in Matthew 19, look at verse 9. He says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Right? So he just quotes what he said in Matthew 5. Here's what I'm trying to get at here for you. I know these first two points are kind of like the main part of the sermon. But I want you to see that, yeah, marriage is an awesome thing. It's a great thing. A lot of you are looking forward to marriage. But it's also a very solemn thing. It's something that should never be entered into lightly. It's something that for you, you should view at this point in your life as one of the most important things that you'll ever do, one of the most solemn things that you'll ever do. One of the things that's going to take outside counsel, one of the things that you're going to be willing to listen to your parents and even their opinions that you might not like so much, 
It's going to be something that's so solemn that the people who love you, you should probably listen to them if you're entering relationships that they say, yeah, no, I don't think this is right. I don't think this is good. You should listen to them because of how big and how solemn of a thing this is. If I was to ask you, hey, what's more important, what you do for college or who you marry? Right? What's more important? What do you think? There's a right and wrong answer to this. What's more important? Your marriage, right? I bet if I was to think and to dig into your life, what you think is more important and what you work more for and you strive more for and what you put more into is probably, for some of us, it's college. Right? No, I can date who I want to date and whatever. I mean, it might not work out. But college, that's what I'm really working for. I just want you to see this is a bigger and more solemn thing. It should make your dating and your thinking of who you like and who you don't like, it should make that much more solemn, a much bigger deal. doesn't mean you can't try to find someone to, 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 to marry by dating, right? I think you probably should, right? <laughs> probably should date them before you marry them, right? Uh, this is my humble opinion. You could choose to do something different, but, you know, I think you probably should probably figure them out first, right? Get to know them a little bit. Ask them some questions. But you should enter into all that more seriously than you might otherwise. There's a quality that we're looking for. We saw it in Malachi 2. It's that God calls couples to be faithful to each other. As you're a person who stands on the doorstep of marriage, right? maybe, not, you know, maybe not knocking on the door, maybe you're walking up the driveway. <laughs> there you go. you understand what I just said? You'll get it in a second. Uh, some of you are closer than others but I want you to aim for faithfulness to your future spouse. That's point three. I want you, as a person who's not married, not divorced, aim for faithfulness, total faithfulness to your future spouse. That's point three. Aim for total faithfulness to your future spouse. Here's the good thing. You haven't blown it. You haven't messed up yet. Right? You have not done anything wrong in this area yet. But if you want to be successful in this area, it starts by you being faithful in the little things now. I want you to write this reference down. After you write point three down, write down Luke 16.10. I shared this with the guys in True Men, but this passage is so helpful for my thinking. It should be helpful for your thinking. Jesus said, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Here's the principle I want you to understand. If you're faithful in the little things, as simple as your homework and cleaning your room and taking care of your hygiene, just the little tiny things that don't mean much to everybody, but you know, they're, they're little things. Be faithful in the little things, right? Then you're going to maybe get bigger things, maybe in this area, like a boyfriend or a girlfriend or some kind of you know, relationship where you say we like each other, but we don't know who we are yet, right? Okay. Can you be faithful in every little step along the way? What do I mean by faithful? Do what God wants you to do. Don't do what God doesn't want you to do, even if it's a little thing. Be faithful in a little, because if you're faithful in a little, you'll be faithful in a lot. Some of you think, I can be unfaithful, I can be a, a, a cheater, I could be unfaithful, I could be a liar to my boyfriend or girlfriend, but when I get married, I'll be fine. Like, no, you won't. Like, you are going to be one of those people that gets divorced if you don't change. I'm not saying you can't change, but I'm saying let's just change now. This is the best time. If you're an unfaithful person, if you don't keep your word, if you're not reliable, if you don't do the little things, right, don't think that all of a sudden once you get married, you'll do all the good married things. With, it's like it won't, logically, you know that's not how this all works. 
You don't just step up once you're in that situation. I want you to aim for faithfulness. Think about what you're agreeing to when you get married. You're saying, I'm going to be faithful and only faithful to you sexually. I'm going to be faithful and only faithful to you emotionally. You're the only one that I'm going to give my heart to, so to speak. You're the only one that's going to know all of what I'm thinking in a way that nobody else does. You're saying, I'm going to be faithful to you relationally, right? There's not going to be like some other, you know, some other woman or some other relationship that's going to take priority. Even our kids aren't going to take priority. That's the kind of faithfulness that couples are called to. Your faithfulness also extends to finances. I'm going to take care of you, right? We are going to spend our money in a way that we agree upon. That's some serious faithfulness that you can practice even now. So, if you're dating, considering dating, wanting to date, this needs to be a part of your, your thought process for you right? This is a you point. Aim for total faithfulness. You can't control what they're doing, right? This is about you. What kind of person are you? I mean, seriously, if you're about to be an adult, right, you can legally get married at 18, despite what your parents think, but you can, right? And once you're there, are you the kind of person that is ready for this? And it might sound scary, like, I'm not ready for it. Okay, then let's get ready for it by being faithful to the good things that you need to do that God wants you to do. Are you faithful at reading your Bible? And like, what does that have to do with marriage? It has a lot to do with marriage, right? What kind of husband do you think you're going to be, guys? What kind of wife do you think you're going to be, ladies, if you're not faithful to do the little things? Are you faithful to put away your laundry? Are you faithful to do the dishes that you create? Like, I know we're getting down to the very nitty-gritty of your life, but are you faithful to take out the trash? You know what causes problems in marriages? When husbands don't take out the trash for their wives. You know what causes some friction in marriages. I don't know if you ever thought about this, ladies, right? But when the laundry doesn't get put away the way the husband wants, like both sides kind of have some problems with each other when you don't do the little things, right? I do want you to practice this, right? Practice faithfulness while you're single, while you're, you know, in your family, even under your your parents' authority. Practice that because you're going to be a better person to be married to. Like, have you ever considered that? Like, what kind of person am I going to be to be married to? Am I going to be a good husband? Am I going to be a good wife? Like, just thinking about how I live now. Am I going to be good? Am I going to be one that people would want to be around? And that's another thing. Um, you might become a more attractive person if you become more like the husband that you need to be, guys. You might be more attracted to some of these guys, ladies, if you were doing the things that God wanted you to do in, in your life right now, right? There is some truth to that, right? It doesn't mean that if nobody likes you, it's because you're an ungodly person. So don't take it the wrong way, right? especially you guys, right? Confidence, right? Confidence, guys. Confidence, ladies, right? But that's you. Aim for faithfulness for you. Here's the fourth thing, okay? Let's look at the other person because you're at the position right now where right now, none of you married, none of you have picked who you're going to be married to, believe it or not. Even if you're dating, I don't care that you're dating. I don't care that you're a senior. I don't care. You have not picked your spouse yet. I don't see a ring, right? And even the ring, I don't care about the ring, right? No offense, engaged couple, Engaged couple. This is why this is why I say in premarital though, right? It's like, dude, I don't care. Not sorry. Context. <laughs> Context. I say, do you know that Pastor Lucas on my wedding day, on the morning, said, Are you sure you want to go through with this? I'm like, dude, stop. We were playing golf. Like, I'm like, no, stop. I'm gonna get married. 
And he's like, okay, just checking. And sometimes I bring this up to him. Actually, regularly bring this up to him. And he's like, hey, be better for you to break up before we get married. Because, like, we think of it as, like, a scale that, like, ascends. Like, the more serious the relationship is, the more committed you are to one another. Biblically, it's like, nope, 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 nope. Yeah, right? We think of it like, oh, well, if it's two days before the wedding, I couldn't get, I couldn't break up. It's like, no, biblically you could, and you should if you want to. Not, not if you want, sorry. I'm not talking to you guys, right? I'm not talking, don't break up, right? I mean, you can, that's fine, but biblically, but like, but you probably shouldn't, right? Uh, be a little awkward, but, but no, like in principle, in, like you can. See, here's, here's the bottom line. After I got married, I realized like marriage is a bigger deal than I thought it was when I wasn't married. And dating is a not as big of a deal as I thought it was when I was dating, right? We always tend to think where we are is the bigger deal, obviously, right? But when it comes to singleness and dating and marriage, like, you can break up at any point before you say, I do, right? You could even, you know, yeah. <laughs> Never mind. You ever heard of annulment? Never mind. That's a... Point four. What's point four? That's good. Annulment. No. Point four is not about annulment. Point four is about this. You have not chosen who you want to be married to. That's what I was saying. Okay. I was building for point four. A lot of build up to say this. Write this down for point number four. Don't marry an unfaithful person. Don't marry an unfaithful person. You have control over that. You get to decide that. First Corinthians 7 says, if you're single, whether you're a guy or a girl, which by the way, back then, kind of revolutionary, that these Fathers would let their daughters have any say in who they get married to. Paul says, nope, fathers, you should let your daughters have a say in this. If you're a single lady or you're a single guy, you get to choose who you want to be married to. I, do I need to duck down? Like, we, uh, Don't marry an unfaithful person. There you go. Point four. Yeah. You get to choose. None of you have made a bad decision in this field yet. Some of you have made bad decisions in the dating field, Right? But you don't have to make a bad decision in the future for this. Maybe you have a partner who uh, is a long-term decision. That, that, or, you know, you're going to have a partner for a long time. You better make a good decision. On Tuesday, I had a partner. I played pickleball for the first time in a long time. My partner was Pastor Elvis. Um, it did not go super well. I mean, Pastor Elvis is super nice, right? I'm competitive, I want to win, I especially don't want to lose to like, you know, Pastor Roy or anybody, like, I don't want to lose to Pastor Roy. Pastor Roy, who was your partner for pickleball? Oh yeah, no, they were the worst. Um, how many did you win and lose? Give me your record. What, 0 and 5 or 0 and 6? 0 and 6, okay, great. We were almost 0 and 6. We were like 2 and 4. And you know me, right? if you do know me, right? It's like I'm not happy about losing, right? I'm like trying really hard. And then afterwards, Pastor Elvis knew that like, you know, I was not, not happy. Like I, it was fine, right? But he started sending me memes about like bad pickleball partners. And there was a video he sent me of a guy who like was going to smack the pickleball and then throws the paddle and it hits his partner in the head. I think Pastor Elvis was just trying to say, hey, I wasn't that bad, right? I'm like, no, no, it's good. Uh, but, I mean, ever since right now, haven't really thought about it. Me and Pastor Elvis, we may never play pickleball again. That's okay. It was a very short-lived 
thing, okay? Uh, your marriage partner, bigger deal, right? A little bit more thought, a little bit more consequence, more of a decision to make for you. And it's one that you should make carefully. And it also means you need to have high standards for the person that you choose to marry. And you need to have very high standards for the person that you are going to be. Point three is about you. You need to have high standards for yourself and be a person that you need to be. Point four is you need to make sure the person you pick is the right kind of person that you should be with because of how serious point one and two is. So there you go. Marriage and divorce. Let's pray. God, we're thankful that we can have this conversation right now. I'm just so grateful that uh, none of these people are married yet. I'm thankful that uh, they get to think about this and really contemplate what it means right now before they make those decisions. You know how many people uh, just wrestle through this and struggle through this after they've made some bad decisions already. And I'm just thankful that you have spared every person in this room from that situation right now. Every high schooler is uh, in the position to, to choose. So I pray that they would choose wisely, they choose well, and that even in this season, that they would become the kind of person that they need to be. I know most of these people will get married. I know some of them won't. No marriage is not the end-all, be-all. Knowing you and being in a right relationship with you is far more important. So I'm thankful for that, that regardless of whatever their relationship status might be, that every person in this room will attend a wedding, and it will be our wedding in Revelation 19. We know that we will eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the church will be united to Jesus Christ, and that that relationship will be perfect and supportive and submissive and all the things that that relationship will be for eternity. We know that we're looking forward to that. So we pray that we would be the right kind of people, faithful kind of people in all the little things here and now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.